Well, good morning again. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1 through 6 will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do come to you longing to see the light of the glory of your Son and the light of the glory of the gospel. So we pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would teach us, uh, even as we look at a text which is about uh, temptation and sin, we pray that you would remind us of mercy and grace. We pray that you would build us up in Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, we'll just be reading the first six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be Desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, when I was uh, a young kid... Uh, Before I was a believer, my my favorite passages in the scriptures were the sensational ones. Uh, Those passages, uh, like like the one in Ezekiel that describes the cherubim. I thought of them as some strange kind of mythological creature. Four wings, four heads, four hands, part man, part eagle, part lion, part ox, and with wheels. I mean, how cool is that? Other similar passages were things like Ephesians 6 and Revelation 12. Uh, Those passages describe spiritual warfare from two different perspectives, the earthly and the heavenly. What young boy doesn't want to know that there is a battle going on somewhere with a dragon and that he might be in it? And so let me assert up front that there is a battle going on, and you are smack dab in the middle. So I I called this sermon uh, an an autopsy of temptation because in this battle, there is always a casualty. As John Owen put it, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, someone has to die here daily. Uh, We want to put sin to death, and so we're going to perform an autopsy on temptation. I know that metaphor doesn't really work, uh, but you get the point. And yet, before we dive in uh, to Genesis 3, I want to ask a question. I want to ask the question, how do we get from the Garden of Eden to Champaign-Urbana? 
Now, our text is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and it's the story of humanity's tragic fall into sin. How do we move from Adam's fall to our fight? It's an important question because what is going on in this passage is not simply an example. It's not just of a story. It's not just a story of don't be like Adam or don't be like Eve. That's not what Genesis 3 is getting at. Adam is what theologians call the, the representative head of humanity, the federal head or the covenantal head. He, he is like the, the CEO of a company where the decisions that he uh, made affect everyone. Uh, he, he, he didn't just act as an example or act as a warning. He acted on our behalf and in our place. See, when, when the president of the United States declares us to be at war, we are at war. Regardless of your political affiliation or stance on pacifism and just war, he acts on our behalf. Many of us will file taxes over the next several weeks, and our filing status will be head of household. You see, no matter how we feel about this principle of representative headship, we, we cannot ultimately escape it, even in our individualistic age. That means, this principle means, that we are decidedly not in the same position as Adam or even Eve. Adam and Eve were made upright in a potentially endless communion with God. But Adam broke God's covenant, and we, being Adam's seed, are born sinful covenant breakers. My stepfather used to always say, from a pumpkin comes a pumpkin. I don't know why a pumpkin, but that's what he said. Uh, put differently, our champion failed to defeat our enemy. We have now been taken captive and made citizens of the enemy's camp. This is why the only way to get from the Garden of Eden to the cities of Champaign-Urbana is through the wilderness of Judea. Jesus was baptized in the wilderness by John, and he was then driven out by the Spirit deeper into the wild to be tempted by Satan. But again, Jesus didn't go there to be our example, but to be our champion a new champion, a better champion. He went to do what Adam failed to do and what we could not do to face down the enemy and to win. Now, uh, this is not a sermon on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, but let me just say one thing about it. that The way Jesus defeated Satan was by God's word and God's spirit. Again, prior to the battle, he was equipped for battle by being anointed with the Spirit at his baptism and hearing the voice of the Father say, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then when Jesus engaged in the skirmish, his sole weapon was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now again, Jesus did this not first as an example, but first as our champion. He defeated Satan because we could not, and this for Jesus was just step one. His climactic defeat of Satan was in the cross and in the resurrection. There Jesus bore our sins, taking away the power of death, which was the only real power that Satan had, according to Hebrews 2.14. And Jesus then rose from the dead and ascended victorious to the right hand of the Father. But that's not all. Because then Jesus pours out the Spirit on us, His church, and puts His gospel in our mouths that we might go out and do battle with the forces of evil yet in the world. And what this means is we can do battle 
because Christ has already won the victory. We can do battle because Christ has already won the victory and we have been raised up with him by faith. As we rest in the completed work of Jesus who faced temptation for us, we are able to face temptation by the work of the Spirit in us. It's in that light that we then return to Genesis 3 to look at three things. Satan's strategies, sin's logic, and the Spirit's warfare. First, Satan's strategies. The text begins that Satan was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, I take it as obvious to the first readers of Genesis, and so it should be seen as obvious to us, that there is something terribly odd about this serpent. Animals, in case you don't know what I mean, don't talk, neither in life nor in the Bible. The only other exception in the Bible is Balaam's donkey, but we are explicitly told at that point in Numbers 22, 28, that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. In other words, this is not normal. And so with the serpent, except with the serpent, we don't see the Lord opening his mouth. We don't find out who is opening his mouth, in fact, until later in Scripture. Jesus calls the devil a murderer from the beginning, a liar and the father of lies. Well, that sounds like the serpent. But Revelation brings it all together for us nicely when it talks about, in Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so Satan is at work seeking to murder and deceive. How does he do that? Well, there are lots of things we could say from this text, but let me just mention four things. First, he seeks to undermine our relationship with God. One commentator, John Collins, says uh, Satan's strategy is to undermine the relationship of trust that is the engine of obedience by attributing unreasonable motives to God. Uh, right, and, and notice that Satan really goes right after the relationship, even if it is in a kind of passive-aggressive way. He, he says to the woman in verse 1, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is incredulous, right? Did, did God really say such a thing? He's questioning God's goodness. He's implying God's stinginess. Now, Eve corrects him, but, but not quite. Maybe she's already sucked in in some way. She minimizes God's generosity. God had said in chapter 2, verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree, right? Surely eat of every tree, emphasizes the abundance. Eve simply says, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. Eve also maximizes God's strictness. She says, neither shall you touch it. Now, some say that Eve is just trying to be careful to obey here. But by attributing such care to God's word, she becomes the first legalist, right? Adding human wisdom to God's law. She is already in trouble. Now, the serpent is quick to jump in. In verse 4, he says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, the serpent is seeking to undermine their relationship. The implication of his words in verse 4 are, God is lying to you. 
In fact, he's holding out on you. He doesn't want what is best for you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to keep you down and hold you back from being all that you could truly be. Now, even the name for God used in this text could be a way of introducing distance. Uh, first, the serpent, and then following him, Eve, used the generic word for God. Now, it's not wrong to use that word. Genesis 1 used it. It implies God as the creator and God as the ruler of all things. But since chapter 2, verse 4, the name given to God is the Lord God. And, and the, the Lord, or Yahweh, is God's personal name. Yahweh is the covenant God, the God in relationship with his people. But the serpent doesn't want Eve to think about covenant or think about the relationship. He wants her to see God as distant and cold and holding out on her. Do you see God as Eve did in that moment? Distant, cold, holding out on you. Do you see God as stingy or overly strict? Well, you have bought into Satan's lie. You can imagine Eve saying to herself, well, if God really loved me, he would have given me this tree too. Think about it. Have you, have you ever had that thought, right? If God really loved me, if he really loved me, if, he, if God really loved you, he would give you his best, which of course is exactly what he has done in the person of his son, Jesus, as we will see. So first, Satan seeks to undermine their relationship with God by questioning God's character, questioning his integrity, questioning his motives. Second, Satan seeks to introduce ambiguity. Now think about this question for a minute. Does Satan lie? Does he say anything in this text that is strictly not true? Now, I know many of us will be quick to say, of course he does. Interestingly, many commentaries, commentators are not so sure. The first thing Satan does, of course, is simply ask a question. There is no express lie in the question, though there is plenty of implication. There's no express lie. But you say, well, what about verse 4, right? Satan directly contradicts God. But does he? At first, notice, even in the English, as with the Hebrew, the statement is ambiguous in verse 4. Uh, verse 4 uh, says, the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Now, that could simply mean it's not certain. It's not certain that you will die. You will not surely die. Second, and so many people have had this question throughout history. Uh, God said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Did Adam and Eve die on that day? Now, we're going to look at that more in detail next week when we get to the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. But some would say, no, not at all. Adam lived to be 930 years old. If you interpret God's words literalistically... Adam and Eve did not die on that day. The, the third thing that Satan does is he promises that their eyes would be opened. Were their eyes opened? 
Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. And so, you know, I'm not playing devil's advocate here. His words are certainly not honest. But what I want you to see is the subtlety of Satan's work. He does not come outright and make a bold-faced lie. And notice along these lines, Satan does not tell Eve to disobey. He doesn't outright encourage that she take the fruit. He tells selective half-truths and introduces ambiguity where God's commandment was clear. You see, that's what Satan traffics in, ambiguity and half-truths. Not nuance, but ambiguity, right? Nuance clarifies truth. Ambiguity confuses it. Satan's tactic is subtle and muddle, right? Subtly introduce muddle-headed thinking. Now, we all get confused sometimes, and that's fine. That's, that's part of life. The question is, what do we do when that confusion comes? Do we remind ourselves of basic truths? Do we reground ourselves in foundational reality? Do we go back to God and throw ourselves on his mercy? Or do we move away from him? Do we strive for clarity and understanding? Or do we move just in whatever direction seems most advantageous to us? And so first, Satan seeks to undermine their relationship with God by questioning God's character. And second, Satan seeks to introduce ambiguity through have-truths and innuendo. Third, Satan seeks to minimize consequences. And and actually, to be honest, Eve uh, does this herself already. She says, God said you shall not eat nor touch lest you die. Now, that is true, but it's weaker than what God said. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In fact, Satan does a better job of quoting God than Eve does, though he denies it. Now, however, we take Satan's ambiguous statement, you will not surely die. Note, right, that the first doctrine questioned or denied is the doctrine of judgment. And of course, right, get rid of judgment and the concept of sin becomes almost meaningless, right? When you you fall into sin, that the moment before you sin, not the moment after, but the, the moment before you sin, when you fall into sin, are you thinking about judgment? Of course not, right? Because any serious meditation on judgment would be a serious buzzkill, right? And so as as Christians, we either put it out of our mind or we say, well, uh, God will forgive me, which is true, unless this sin is a step away from him and towards abandoning the faith. And we say, well, uh, God, God is kind, which is true. But don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, And of course, serious, again, reflection on judgment, even if we are secure in Jesus and have no fear of ourselves facing that judgment, which is where we want to be, serious reflection on judgment will still stir up in us a greater hatred of sin altogether. Not despite, but especially as we consider the cross. See, there we see the judgment of the Father poured out on His Son for us. And if we love our Lord Jesus... That should be enough to cause us to hate sin and to avoid it. Not as a a guilt trip, right? Sometimes we we might manipulate ourselves with Jesus' suffering. You know, we kind of twist in there and, oh, don't you see how much Jesus suffered for you? Are you really going to allow? That's not what I mean. What I mean is out of love for Jesus, we hate the sin that nailed him to the cross. 
So first, Satan seeks to undermine their relationship with God by questioning God's character. Second, he seeks to introduce ambiguity through have-truths and innuendo. Third, Satan seeks to minimize the consequences of sin. And finally, Satan appeals to ambition. Now, sometimes we think uh, that the, the reason I want to do something, you've heard this logic before, the reason I want to do something is because I was told not to do it. The thing forbidden is the thing desired. Uh, the Apostle Paul says something similar to this in Romans chapter 7, verse 8. He says that sin in him seizes the opportunity through the commandment and produced in, in him all kinds of sin. But that is not the case here in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, first, right, Eve had no sin within her to start with. See, Paul says it is sin within that distorts the commandment. Eve has no sin within to start with. And second, if, if we attributed uh, the sin to the law that God had given, that would almost seem to be saying that God, by giving them the law, produced the sin. Now, human beings are not intrinsically evil, right? but are good as God made them. The actual tempting work of Satan, then, is a vital element in Adam and Eve's falling into sin. And that's what helps us understand the next element of the temptation. Satan appeals to Eve's ambition. He really begins that in verse 1. Uh, by the very nature of his question, he implies that Eve is in a position to judge God's word, as if she is independent of God and over God. But Satan says in verse 5, God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Now, like I said, I'm not sure that this would have even been desirable to Eve. I'm not sure that it would have even crossed her mind had the serpent not suggested it. Adam and Eve were surely very happy in the garden, right? They had everything they needed, fruit trees in abundance, fellowship with like-minded people, a role to play in God's world. But Satan introduces discontent by saying, but there's something more. There's something that you don't have, that you could have. You could be as God. Now, of course, the irony of that statement is that they were created to be like God. They, they were the most like God of any other creature. God had given them everything, but Satan said more. Now, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says that the climax of Satan's temptation is, is a lie big enough to reinterpret life and dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. To be as God and to achieve it by outwitting him is an intoxicating program, he says. God will henceforth be regarded consciously or not as rival and enemy. And Eve buys it. She buys into this temptation. She buys in to this program of rivalry with God. Jesus, by the way, did not. We read about Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4. In fact, Jesus' program is actually quite the opposite of Adam and Eve's. Man wants to rival God so God stoops down to become man. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He does not pursue selfish ambition, but self-sacrifice. 
Man seeks to rival God and so becomes God's enemy. Jesus bears our sin as the suffering servant and in so doing makes us God's friends. What are Satan's strategies? First, Satan seeks to undermine their relationship with God by questioning God's character. Second, he seeks to introduce ambiguity through half-truths and innuendo. Third, Satan seeks to minimize the consequences of sin. Fourth, Satan appeals to ambition, creating in man an attitude of rivalry with God rather than dependence upon God. And that brings us to our second point, sin's logic. The temptation of Satan really ends with the implied question, don't you want what's best for you? Don't you want to be all that you could be? God is holding back on you. And sin's logic picks up on this and says, well, what is best for me? It's not a bad question, by the way. Sin just gives a bad answer. Satan pointed Eve away from God and to the creation as the source of life. Essentially, he said, look, God doesn't love you. You're on your own. He's holding out on you. The world has what you truly need. Eat this fruit, and you will be all that you can be. So the problem is not the question, what's best for me, but when we locate the answer to that question in the created order rather than in the creator. Sin's answer to that question, what's best for me, is this. When, when, you, can, when you can be right, when you can feel good, when you can have more, when you can rise above, when you can stand strong through created things rather than the Creator. And we see all of that in verse 6. First, be right. Verse 6 begins, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. So when the woman saw that the tree was good. What does that remind you of? Well, It, it reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. And God saw that it was good. That's repeated seven times in Genesis chapter 1. God saw that it was good. Except now, in Genesis chapter 3, instead of God determining good and bad, it is Eve. She has subverted the role of God in determining and declaring what is good. She has become her own independent judge. As one commentator put it, she is substituting her own values for revealed norms. Eve saw that the tree was good. Good according to whom? Good as defined by whom? God said this tree was very bad. But Eve has declared her autonomy. She is in the right, not God. Second, sin's logic is that we should feel good. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. Uh, John calls this the lust of the flesh. This thing will bring satisfaction to my body. Therefore, I ought to take it. Eve has given in to sensuality that the stuff of this age can give me what I need. It is good for me. But again, of course, God had said on the day that you eat of it, you will die. Third sin's logic says that we should have more. Uh, God had given Adam and Eve every tree of the garden for food except one. But this tree, Eve sees, is a delight to the eyes. Uh, so often, sin is connected to our eyes. We, we look around, we see, we take. That was true here. Eve will see the fruit and take it. Uh, that's true with Achan in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. He saw beautiful things in Jericho and he took them. That will be true of David. He saw Bathsheba bathing and he sent and took her. 
Jesus warns against looking and lusting. What we do with our eyes matters. They are the doorways into our hearts. Eve looks at the tree and says, it must be good. Look at how beautiful it is. It's a trap. She's looking merely at its outward appearance, not its moral implications. Fourth, sin's logic is that we should rise above. Uh, this tree was, according to Eve, to be desired to make one wise. Eve wanted to become, become to make something of herself. She could be as God. The word desire here is the same word that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that's translated covet. Eve was coveting God's wisdom. Why couldn't she have what God had? Why couldn't she be what God is? Now, it's important that we see here that this tree is not magical, right? Neither is it true that Adam and Eve didn't know good from evil in some way already. Now, some have said that the tree represents knowledge found independently of God. As we saw already when Eve began to make value judgments apart from God. Others saw, say that it, this tree represented God's secret wisdom. There are things that we cannot know. There is a limit to human knowledge. Taking of this tree represented their desire to transgress that limit. And still others say that the tree would lead to greater knowledge of good and evil inevitably. If they obeyed, they would gain one kind of knowledge. And if they disobey, they would gain another. Hence, it is a tree that produces knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, regardless of what they do with it. Now, whatever the case, by, by the serpent's temptation, it came to represent for Eve a level or type of knowledge that was divine. You shall be as God. Sin's logic for Eve was climbing that ladder, becoming like God, having what God has, being who God is, rising above where she was to where she thought she could be through the means that this world offers. This tree, you will be as God. The problem is not ambition itself, right? But that her ambition knew no bounds. And she thought the world could get her there. Fifth, sin's logic is that we should stand strong. It's just two words in English. She took. Those two words are a declaration of independence. Rather than rely on God as her source of good, from now on, Eve would take matters into her own hands. She would be strong in her own strength taking matters into her own hands, literally beginning with this fruit. The logic of sin is, I, I rely on my own strength to get me what I want. So the logic of sin, right, is turning from God, I look to this world. I evaluate by the standards of this age rather than the Word of God. I delight in the provision of this age rather than the presence of God. I climb up the status ladder of this age rather than seeking to serve God and neighbor. I rely on the promises of, of this or the powers of this age rather than the Word and the power and the path that God has set before me. So the, the logic of sin is what, what's best for me is what is found in this world rather than in the one who made this world. And so that's Satan's strategies and sin's logic, which brings us finally to the spirit's warfare, right? We have to see, we have to think through, okay, uh, we're, we're, we're not in the same position as Adam. We're not in the same position as Jesus, but because of Jesus, 
we have now been raised with Jesus, given his word, given his spirit so that we can do battle. So how does that happen? And we could give a very short definition of, of the spirit's warfare by saying it's, it's doing battle by the spirit with the word. But I, I feel compelled right, to give a, a little more of an answer than that. And so I'll, I'll try to be brief, but I'm going to mention six things. The first is listen to God's voice. Eve listened to Satan's voice. That was the first step of the entrance of sin into her soul. And there are always two voices in the world. There is Satan's and there is God's. Listen to God's voice, which means be in his word. Know the scriptures. Open your heart to him. Second, boast in Jesus. Satan introduced ambition into Eve's soul. This idea that she could be something independent of God and even as a rival to God. We are creatures, gloriously made creatures, but creatures nonetheless. And in Adam, we are fallen and broken and stained by sin. But in Jesus, we are forgiven and cleansed and made new. And so our boast is not that we've gotten so far up the ladder. Our boast is in Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is our glory. In him, we are children of the Father, secure in his grace. This means I can be honest about my sin because my boast is in another. Third, rely on the Spirit. I, I do not have strength to do battle with Satan. I, I must approach temptation in humble reliance upon the Spirit. All change and growth comes from Him, according to 2 Corinthians 3.19. This reliance then, reliance upon the Spirit, looks like prayer. You know, prayerlessness is always independence. But prayer is active dependence upon the Spirit. And Jesus promises, if we ask, we will receive. And so pray for the Spirit's work in your life every day. Fourth, delight in the Father's smile. So much of temptation is holding out the world as an object of delight. But our joy and delight are in the steadfast love of the Lord. The fact that the Father loves me is my greatest joy. If I keep the Father's smile before my eyes, the goods of this world will be in their rightful place under His feet as gifts of His grace. Fifth, pursue obedience. Rather than serving self by striving for me, I can strive to give of myself for the good of others. People say that the best defense is a good offense, right? So as I pursue obedience, I have no time for temptation. I'm seeking to walk with God. I'm pursuing that with all my heart. I'm studying to obey. I'm seeking to know the Father's will. My heart is one living with and for my Father. Sixth, fight hard against sin. Uh, th there are specific things that one can do to fight sin. Uh, first, to fight sin, watch yourself. Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. We, we've already talked about prayer, but, but watching is an important element. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you are not aware of the battle you are in, the enemy will take you by surprise. Be alert, be watchful against temptation. Second, to fight sin, cut it out. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
Now, I, I take that as a hyperbole, by the way. Don't, don't maim yourself. But Jesus is saying, take sin so seriously that you are willing to cut out of your life anything that will lead to sin. Take whatever steps are necessary to make sin difficult for you in your life. What do you need to, to rearrange or to remove from your life to make sin more difficult? Now, that won't change your heart, but it is an important step. And changing your habits, changing your life will contribute to changing your heart. Third, to fight sin, prepare for the battle. Uh, you know, what, what truths speak to your heart about the battles you currently face? And as you read the scriptures, right, what is it in the Bible that speaks into your situation? And so, so what, what, what lies are you believing? What, where, where do you need to reframe reality by scripture? What passages will help you do that? Read those, meditate on those, memorize those, right? Memorize scripture that speaks to your current struggles. Not as a miracle medicine or a wonder pill, but as, as bullets loaded into a gun, right? So that when temptation comes, I can shoot it down with the truth of God's word, just like Jesus did in the wilderness. He responded to temptation. He had an answer to the lies of the evil one. And that answer came from God's word. Fourth, to fight temptation at work against your flesh by doing the opposite of what your flesh craves, right? Does it crave acknowledgement? Pursue obscurity. Does it crave indulgence? Practice periodic fasting, right? Does it crave money and fancy things? Give sacrificially and practice simplicity. Obey Jesus in the very ways, at the very points that will weaken the flesh by starving it. Right? Don't, don't starve your body, right? Starve your out-of-control desires. And finally, to fight sin, feed your soul. And this brings us back to God's Word. It brings us back to Jesus. It brings us back to the Spirit, right? Feed your soul on God's Word. Feed your soul on the Gospel. We, we, you know, we can change our tastes. You, you might have experienced this, right? Uh, uh, you, you might grow up disliking something but develop a taste for it over time. Well, so by the Spirit's power, we can change the orientation of our hearts from worshiping the glories of creation to worshiping the glory of God. Feed on the glories of God and the gospel, however and wherever you can find them. And your love will grow large and Satan's strategies will lose their power. Jesus has won the battle. As our representative head and savior, and if you are in Christ by faith, you have been made new. You are a new creation in Christ, having the power of the Spirit at work within you. Stand firm against the evil one and make no provision for the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would prepare us for battle by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.